A warm welcome to the Agile Gorilla podcast. The Agile Gorilla is a collective of experienced M&A professionals located in Europe, the US, Asia, and the UK. We know each other professionally and personally, having worked on many deals around the globe together. For more information on the voices you'll hear, please go to our website. Every couple of weeks, we'll be discussing a topic or a deal that's hitting the headlines of M&A currently. What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? And perhaps most importantly, what should leadership be doing? And what might we do differently? As anyone who knows us or has dealt with us would say, we're never short of an opinion. Today we're going to speak about, um, this is our, our Buying Banks podcast, and I will take it upon myself to chair it today. Um, uh, and I think the interesting thing that's in all the papers, and it's not just the FT, but it's in, in all the papers and everywhere at the moment, is how does this compare to the 2007-2008 crisis? Uh, you know, is it, again, a regulatory uh, regime challenge? Um, you know, are the banks that are being bought out uh, and the banks that are buying, is that sort of, once again, a sort of element of national service and that sort of stuff. So I think we should explore a bit of that today, if we can, uh, and get your ideas, I suppose, first and foremost, in terms of where you see the context perhaps being slightly different from, or the same, from the 2007-2008 crisis. We're all old enough to remember that, I think. Um, and uh, and let's, so, so why don't we start with that? Um, Abby, what, what's your your sense of how this feels and looks compared with the 0708 scenario? So uh, the difference, and you know, I've been reading uh, a lot around this topic, partly because it's something that there is a fundamental disagreement in the investment community as to whether this is the beginning of something worse or this is a idiosyncratic one-off situation that we don't need to worry about. And Initially, when Silicon Valley Bank had its episode and went bankrupt, uh, people basically dismissed it and said, this is a unique thing to Silicon Valley Bank. Secondly, then when it happened to Credit Suisse across the ocean and a bank that was, you know, by and large governed differently than Silicon Valley Bank, people started getting panicked. And uh, it led uh, one of my favorite commenter commentators on this topic uh, at Bloomberg named Matt Levine, who's a former investment banker turned journalist. And he basically described this as a resurfacing of the fundamental fiction of banking. Mm. The fundamental fiction of banking is that banks take deposits and give them away to other people. And they basically borrow short because presumably many of those deposits could be taken back by depositors any time and lend it long into 30-year yeah. mortgages in the 08, 09 crisis. Yeah, the working and capital model doesn't work fundamentally. Is what you're saying. At a fundamental level, it requires a certain fiction where people who have the right to withdraw immediately choose not to. 
and and therefore then let the banks borrow long and lend long. That's the only way it works. And every now and then, panic sex sets in and people go back and say, hey, I, this is really short-term loans I'm giving to the bank, and they withdraw, saying they're not getting paid enough to take that risk. And this is a, a resurfacing of that fundamental problem. The difference there is that in 08, 09, or 07, 08, there was real defaults. There were real loans given out on the long side. And then the lesson they learned is stop giving lending money to people who can't pay it back. And so Silicon Valley Bank and others did the exact opposite, where they lent it to the US federal government and bought treasuries. And that caused this iteration. So history doesn't necessarily repeat, or, uh, but rather echoes. And this echo was that they, the lesson they learned from the last war uh, actually is what caused this one. And uh, I thought that's interesting. Well, what's your, your contextual learning behind this crisis, well, potential crisis in the previous one? I think in both cases, the, the question of um, lending long-term when they've got their money short-term rests entirely on, on trust. Every individual being sure that, yes, okay, there's a mismatch, but if I as an individual pull my money out, um, it's not going to topple the whole system. And therefore, I think one of the essential things this time is that um, people's um, deposits, you know, have not been lost. I think it's when people start losing their deposits. Of course, shareholders got bitten. <laughs> Once they've you know, they, they've got their tears to wipe. But but the people who lent the money um, through various mechanisms um, have not lost it. And I think that is the, the key thing um, which prevents this from having a disastrous domino effect. If if a single of these, you know, fairly sizable banks, you talk about regional banks, but I mean, they're still big institutions. Uh, if, if one of them uh, starts, you know, not being able to refund the money, then I think things will just spin out of control completely, which is why um, I think this particular exercise, the, the one now with JP Morgan um, and First Republic, I don't know all the intricacies of banking. This is not my world. I see this as an amazing um, marketing and communication exercise. Because JP Morgan will come as the, the white knights, the hero that has saved the American citizens and the governments, uh, you know, not having a, um, a great face at the end of this and so on. And all the, if you look at the the communication that was made, um, you know, by, by the, um, by Jamie Dimon or Dimon, I don't know how he pronounces his name. Um, it's all full of little sound bites that are reassuring. Uh, you know, we'll protect all deposits, insured and uninsured. So you wonder why the insured ones, you know, accepted a lower return. But I mean, everybody gets their money back. Um, then he says, JP Morgan is supporting the US financial system. Also, they're good guys. They're leading the efforts. He says, our government invited us and others to step in, and we did. So they're good guys again, they're patriotic heroes, etc., cetera, et cetera. Um, And I think it's been, you know, it's a clever deal, you know, to say modestly benefits our company overall. So even if it goes wrong, the difference in size, it's not gonna kill JP Morgan, it might be a distraction, um, but it's slightly accredited to shareholders. So, oh, they're not, you know, they're not being egoistic by helping their shareholders or forgetting their shareholders and doing everything for the customers and so on. Um, I think it's it's very clever. I watched um, an interview uh, on Blue, uh, Bloomberg TV uh, by uh, of Jamie Dimon, and he says uh, First Republic did some things really well. 
So it wasn't a basket case bank that's done everything wrong or, you know, Credit Suisse made a series of errors, um, which which put their profitability, you know, down the plug. I think that's right. I think, I suppose that would be a conclusion. I'm not sure we can throw Credit Suisse into the same bucket of banks as SVB and First Republic and no. Signature and Pacific West and all the rest of them that seem to be lining up for it. Credit Suisse has got some fundamental, it's a bit like, you know, did you die of COVID or did you derive related disease and happen to catch COVID at the end? You know, that's the great statistical yeah. thing that happened over the last or two years or so. Uh, Credit Suisse had some fairly fundamental challenges to it. So I, I would, I would draw, draw a distinction between those two, I think, probably. I suppose I'm looking at this from this side of the pond and... The reality of the 07, 08 crisis for people like Northern Rock and Alliance and Leicester and Bradford and Bingley, who were all the banks that were really affected by it, were was was just ridiculous growth. I mean, Northern Rock in the year before um, they went, they were bought out by the government, um, owned something like 25 to 26 percent of the UK mortgage market. Right. So how is that sustainable? You know, it's a, it's a hundred billion dollar, a hundred billion pound bank, you know, 25 percent, 25 percent probably depositors and the rest basically came through the wholesale funding market. And in a week, the wholesale funding market just closed. Now, they were trading at 12 pounds uh, share price. Uh, City was projecting them to be at 15 pounds in about two or three months late, later. I mean, they were doing extremely well. And what's interesting also about that one is that if you look at the consequences of that, um, you know, they did the whole good bank, bad bank split. Uh, no one lost any money, right? Their credit book, their book was extremely solid. So it was just really about crazy amounts of growth and really poor timing. Uh, which I think is interesting. I think the other thing about this whole national service thing that you're describing in terms of JP Morgan is that I note that Blackstone and Apollo uh, and indeed Cerberus uh, in the 0708 crisis were, were very happily picking up little books of business and at a, at a nice 5 to 10% discount on, on book price. Now, they didn't do that for, um, for love. Uh, they did it because they uh, recognised the fact that the, the quality of those books was extremely high and they were getting a very good, very good deal. Uh, through that process. So I think there are some differences um, there between the organizations. The other little observation I had for you, which I thought was interesting, was that, and this is something that, Paul, you'll appreciate, is the optics of, of a queue, right, um, are interesting. You know, if, remember, 0708 was really sort of pre-major digital banking. Okay, I'll just give you some numbers. I reckon not well. We think that Northern Rock had a run on the bank of between one and two billion pounds. And the optics of that were horrific. People lining up in front of the bank branches uh, to try and take their money out. The run on the bank for SVB was around $40 billion. It was just all done digitally. So really significant contrast in terms of numbers, but the optics are much more manageable. I, I do want to touch on something Paul said, which is the storytelling aspect of what J.P. Morgan did was extraordinary. Because if you look, and Matt Levine speaks to this a little bit as well, but if you look at what actually happened, is that J.P. Morgan agreed to buy uh, First Republic basically for nothing. They took, they bought it for a certain amount of value, but any losses were going to be ascribed to the federal government. So notwithstanding the fact that they draped themselves from the flag, the actual numbers suggest that they're not taking very much risk at yeah. all. Yeah. At the same time, 
um, you know, the bank itself is worth more than just its balance sheet. It actually had client relationships. They had client relationship officers. And, and at the time or prior to actually having this event, they were taking share away from banks like JP Morgan because they were providing a higher level of service in a much more bespoke way. And so what JP Morgan was able to do is basically acquire all this network and the set of relationships, the human resources and capital of this bank, and they got it for free because all they paid for was the financial assets of the bank. And with the downside taken by the US federal government, and then they, or in large part, and then they got this upside for free, which is a brilliant piece of storytelling because they made it out to be, as Paul, you said, uh, that they were doing everybody else a favor. And in reality, they were getting a bargain. And maybe that's why they were so uh, clear about the fact that they felt that they were doing a public service. Because if anybody actually dug around in the numbers, they'd realize that one could make a case, certainly, that the federal government or the people weren't exactly getting the, the best deal possible. Really interesting. Really interesting. Shall we talk a bit about the... Um the integration challenge behind this. So say you're JP Morgan there and you've bought First Republic or, you know, HSBC buying a chunk of SVP, SVB. Well, there's a thing, a few things there that strike me as being really interesting. And again, it's a little bit of, 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 um, of, sort of history from the Northern Rock example, which I think is fascinating, which is that um, the deployment of literally vast numbers of people into that bank to effectively create functions that didn't exist. Uh, whether it was corporate finance or it was regulation and compliance, not that there wasn't a clearly there was a regulation and compliance function, it just wasn't at the scale that perhaps was optically expected um, in that bank. So they started, you know, just they just set stood up these uh, incredible sized departments, which would have made the bank fundamentally unprofitable because of the cost that they were they were charging for that process, and that was clearly in response to a regulatory pressure, which says. You can't just sit there and do nothing. You may have bought this thing, but now you're not you're not a passive owner of this. You're actually going to have to actively integrate it and do something with it. And that's interesting because for most of these banks, you know, buying another bank was not part of their uh, transformational integration slate that they drew off the beginning of the year, right? They don't have resources sitting around saying, oh, what we'll do, oh, we'll wait for an opportunity to come along and then we'll deploy ourselves. So it's almost always going to be externals that they're going to bring in at vastly inflated prices, as we all know, um, to come and do that work, right? Um, so, uh, and, you know, and let alone the technology challenge, if there is one around integrating, um, you know, two two disparate types of systems into, into what they're trying to do. Um, so, so the integration challenge is something that I'm quite interested to explore. Paul, what's your view on, on where the focus is going to be and what that's going to have to a, an unsuspecting transformation department, if there is such a thing? Well, I, again, in that Bloomberg interview, Jamie Dunham was talking about, um, you know, how many people they're throwing at this, particularly in terms of all the technology systems and so on, which obviously must be, you know, immensely complicated and very secured and so on. But another point he made was, just when he said, you know, First Republic did some things really well, he said, so we've got a whole team of people who are in there sort of understanding how they did things so we can get the best of both. And that, in my experience, the knowledge sharing is one of the most difficult parts, uh, particularly when you've got one huge bank that buys another big bank, but not that huge, um, that's 
you know, maybe they'll say this is the JP Morgan way of doing things, uh, rather than actually you know, looking at themselves in the mirror and saying, oh, maybe this is why they were getting some market share away from us. Um, because there's not a balance, you know, there's an acquirer and there's somebody who's been saved, who has to sort of remain modest in the corner and thankful for being pulled out of a, of a nasty situation. Um, so it's not symmetrical. And, and I think that this whole thing of the best of both, yes, intellectually is nice, in practice, very difficult. Paul, J.P. Morgan obviously is not known for their, you know, humility per se, but they may be self-aware because uh, sitting on the ground in New York City, uh, most of the First Republic branches are basically either one block away or around the corner from a Chase branch. And so uh, one of the interesting things that you point out is, you know, in theory, if they were truly self-aware, they'd understand why they're losing these shares and incorporate the best thinking of the people at, you know, at First Republic. But um, that'll be a very interesting experiment, you know, experiment in terms of how they manage this, whether they convert it all to the J.P. Morgan way of doing things, or they recognize that clearly there's a group of customers who are happy with what First Republic was offering as a set of services. And, and if that could be done profitably, they ought to maybe learn something from the experience and adapt. It's really interesting, Abe, that is a really interesting point, is because financial services mergers are different from lots of others, which is that the, the real risk of the integration in terms of destroying value comes with the integration effort. The reason why I say that is because it's your customers leaving that fundamentally are going to have an impact as to whether this is going to be positive or negative. And it's very immediate, right? It's not like a, there's no sort of year-long procurement agreement that you've got in place with your customer base that you can lock them in for. They can literally just walk out the door. And so the more sustainable, the more sustainable your sustained your customer base is, the more you're able to maintain them in your business, the more you've actually got a business case. Um, so again, it comes back to that thing, uh, probably again to that sort of love offensive that you were describing with Jamie Diamond, which is, you know, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to learn, this is how we're going to work together, um, is about that customer retention piece. Because uh, ultimately, without that, um, you're going to end up in a really, really difficult place. I, me I remember talking to a guy about separation in South, South America, and, um, you know, he was paid, basically, on uh, the successful retention of customers. In fact, the bank that bought this branch had to find more money because they were very successful at retaining the, the customer base from what they'd originally thought uh, they were going to have to pay for it. Um, so they, they managed to retain and, and keep them there. And so that goes to this question about what does the service model look like? You know, what are they, what, what, what does, the does the technology more user-friendly than the one that we currently, that JP Morgan might have? You know, it, what, what sort of, what differentiates them from perhaps uh, JP Morgan and therefore how do we, uh, retain that customer base because that is a risk, right? Uh, and there's a substance and a style. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know why, in terms of how people interface with their with their advisors there and so on, um, because the rest of the integration is going to be. I mean, there's a, there's a methodology to to integrate a bank in terms of you know the network, the the sort of organization, the systems, and so on. Um, but actually deciding on the you know, sort of the interface uh, is going to be key. One question for both of you. In terms of the client-facing parts of the business, let's put aside the back office, which I'm sure they'll integrate quite well. And in terms of the client-facing aspects of the business, have either of you ever seen a situation 
whether the right answer was not to integrate and that the client or the, the institution followed through with that, meaning they kept them separate. Um, oh, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, it, it, probably my, one of my favorite case studies ever that I worked on, it was, a, it was an integration of ING Bank into private bank into OCBC, where the, the CEO of OCBC said, we're fundamentally not integrating that into us. In fact, what we're going to do is integrate our private bank into ING, because otherwise we'll mess it up very badly and 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 that took all the heat out of the discussion so they did integration but they sort of reversed integrate themselves integrated themselves into the smaller business because they recognized that's where the value was so i've seen that i have absolutely seen that and it's interesting it comes back to this thing um again it was a comment that i i i, I heard from one of my from the, one of the people i spoke to about northern rock um where um that requires a degree of um, humility, as you say, or indeed uh, open-mindedness, or indeed perhaps the naysayer role. Um, it's it's it, where, where you recognise your own fallibility as an institution, uh, and therefore um, it, this is really more about value creation as opposed to your own ego in terms of how you want to um, manage and create that that process. Um, I think just the one thing I was going to say on that though, and it, and um, the the process, as you say. Uh, Paul of integration, everyone's got that these days because we've all been through about hundred of them. Um, so whether they work or not is a whole different question. But but um, the one thing I would just add to that, and that's interesting, is that that process almost always excludes the the informal aspects of of an integration process, which are the relationships and the networks that exist within the business. And these banks will have those relationships and networks um, and they'll be you know, driven by a purpose and a, and a direction. They'll be very excited about the fact they've been beating JP Morgan in their preferred marketplace. The human cost of an acquisition like this um, is often you know, at leadership level where the people who fundamentally won't succeed in this process you know, are the CFOs and COOs and CEOs that come out. But they are extremely connected in this organization and taking the sort of head off the business um, uh, as a, you know, a cost of failure, if you like, um, has a much wider reaching impact, I think, um, than just removing some very expensive people at the top of the business. Paul, I don't know if you've seen anything like that in the past where that sort of action has led to um, to a lot of un un unexpected consequences. Not in the banking sector, because I don't have enough experience of it. But in terms of a philosophy of integrating or not integrating, um, I, for me, one very relevant and very comparable example um, was Mo Hennessy within LVMH, who buy and sell companies, never integrate them. Very minimal centralization versus Diageo, where everything is thrown into a big melting pot and becomes a big, you know, consolidated organization, um, which I once discussed with one of the top, you know, top guys at, at Mo Hennessy. And uh, it was interesting because he said, well, yeah, you can you can have a few savings um, by by integrating, although it's a big distraction. But he said for us at Louis Vuitton or in Hennessy, um, you know, the key to earning more money is selling a few more Vuitton bags or a few more bottles of champagne because we're a very high margin business and therefore reducing costs uh, is not the key to success. And of course, once they've got the maximum value out of a, one particular brand, they sell it off and buy another one. And there's no carve-outs, there's no complication at all. So, but both companies are successful. You can't say one is right, one is wrong. I mean, look at the edge they, you know, they've grown exponentially, but uh, and obviously so has LVMH. It's different, just a different approach. And I think 
yes, the one of not integrating and, and buying a company and having the humility and maybe the wisdom of saying, you know, we buy this company because we think we can manage it better uh, rather than saying we buy the company to integrate it and make some savings. Um, that, that is where the big difference is. And obviously LVMH in, in their philosophy believe that, you know, they understand the luxury market better. They have better visibility and they can push whatever they, you know, they get a synergy out of the image uh, and not out of the organization, the cost of the integration of systems. Uh, but what about that, that sort of, that point I was trying to make about the, the, the removal of the leadership and the sort of unexpected consequences of that which looks like a relatively simple saving. You know, we only need one person with a C in this title um, to do this. Have you seen- it's a simple saving, but then you have, you know, at that level, you've got quite close contacts and relationships between people. Yeah. And a few heads, people will feel a bit sort of like, not orphans, and I don't want to exaggerate on the emotional thing, but it's not the same thing. You're asking for lots of people to actually change their, their way of being managed or of collaborating with people and so on. And if it's not their cup of tea, they'll move on. Yeah, and you could suddenly lose lots of people. Yeah, exactly. Have you know? It reminds me of it. It reminds me of our uh, discussion around Broadcom, mm. where, if you remember, there was an explicit, to Paul's point, statement that they're uninterested in integrating. Their goal is to accelerate the growth of the business on a standalone basis, and they don't want to be bothered by having to take out the businesses are so fragile potentially or growing so fast that any tinkering could actually damage it. And I'd be curious to see what what uh, what JPM does, you know, with First Republic, because I think that that's one where clearly there was something right that First Republic was doing, as Paul said, and uh, whether they learn from it and adapt, uh, and whether, and I think this is to your point, Ben, whether that difference, if you will, the targeting of of, of potential clients and things came from the top, yeah. and if you get rid of that top. Do you send the rest of the organization into disarray because yeah. they don't know where they should where where they should be hunting and the style by which they were doing it and uh, and targeting and so forth? What well, one thing, Abby, and you got a, you'll have an insight on this, and, and and just another little nuance from the Northern Rock thing, which I thought was fascinating, was that um, it was very much a bank, or in fact, a building society originally then became a listed bank. With with lots and lots of little shareholders, all of whom lived in the sort of northeastern part of um, the, the UK. Um, uh, in fact, when they had their EGM, they 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 booked a, um, a sort of stadium called the Arena, where sort of five to six thousand of these guys turned up. Um, and and the, the the message was almost always the same, which was um, you know the folk from London have just basically screwed us. This this organisation is perfectly great, and in fact, look how what what wonderful things it does. It supports the local communities. It's it's got this charitable foundation. It's attached to our football team. You know, it provides this sort of community service thing that's going on, and we're all connected to it. And we've basically been screwed. Um, and you know, lastly, they're probably right in, in reality because there wasn't really a fundamental issue there. Is that is that that feels to me like a uh, a pattern which might be also quite consistent for some of the sort of the sort of regional banking structure that exists that exists in, in, within the states? Do you think the impact on the community of these uh, of these equi- or these forced um, sales is going to be significant or not? Clearly, there's the view that Silicon Valley Bank mm. was deeply entrenched in the Silicon Valley community. Yeah. People had people had deposited their venture, you know, funding there. It was the go-to bank, and they had actually taken risks to help entrepreneurs early on that no other bank did. And so, 
I think that the dissolution of SVB certainly has leaves a gaping hole. Now, less so on the on the shareholder side because they were distributed pretty broadly, but more on the client. No, no other banks serve those clients as effectively and as in as sophisticated a way as SVB did. They really understood small entrepreneurs. And and uh, First Republic is analogous because it's actually the same thing on the East Coast. If you were a mid-sized owner-led business in New, in the New York metropolitan area, First Republic and Signature, another bank that had a similar situation, were the banks that you would go to. Now, Signature was more on the West Coast, but still, I think that they were the go-to banks. And I think it leaves a gaping hole because these were exactly the bank, uh, clients that the large banks abandoned. Yeah. either because they felt that they were too risky or they were too small. And so in one sense, whether whether there's anything, um, whether anybody fills that vacuum or the JP Morgans and cities of the world uh, or Bank of America realize that there's real value there and go after those clients is unclear. Yeah, really interesting, really interesting. But if, um, if those clients were not keen to work with something which they see as, you know, this is too huge and I'm, I'm too small a fish in a, in a tank that's an ocean. Um, in that case, they, they will get they will be lost. That's right. Unless there's a specific division now focused on this constituency, because the big banks have realized that there's money to be made serving that particular niche, and, uh, and that they didn't appreciate before. So it's possible, but like you said, um, you know, a lot a lot of times large institutions you know, sort of never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Well, so that comes to my sort of final question to me, which I think is a great, maybe we should call this, are we actually looking at a strategy which says, we're just going to hold this in a division, these back, these assets in a division all by themselves, we're going to integrate them at a time when the market's back to where it should be and we're back in a confident state, we just separate it out again. We might call it slightly something slightly different. It's going to be signature part of the JP Morgan family or whatever. Uh, and at the appropriate moment, we'll just split it off again because actually the 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 uh, financial dynamics of that business and that customer still doesn't make any sense. Didn't make any sense to start with. Still doesn't make any sense. The only sense would be to flog it at some stage. What do you think? It, it depends on two things, isn't it? First of all, a realisation or an understanding of the things that uh, First Republic did very well and, and helped to, to gain market share. And then a bit of humility and looking at oneself in the mirror and so say, are we capable of doing this or do we keep it separate? Mm. Um, and the proof then we've got a schedule another podcast for in, shall we say four years time <laughs> and see you know, as a combined business, even if it's separate divisions, how much market share have they gained? Because if they haven't, then they've killed the growth of First Republic and not manage to emulate it themselves. Indeed. You know, are they a they... better bank now than the others as a result of this acquisition? Correct. Or whether they spawned yet another little set of banks to, to take up that marketplace as people get increasingly disillusioned and both customers and employees leave, right? Um, that could be the other part of it. Great stuff. Thanks, guys. We'll speak to you soon. Thanks very much for listening. We love hearing from you. If you've got any ideas, comments, or critiques, please just let us know via Twitter or uh, LinkedIn. Thanks also to Sanika for providing the music. See you soon.